Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flail Forward podcast. This is your host, Rob. I'm here with Carr, Cav, and Mark at the moment, and uh, we are going to talk today about GMing styles. Specifically, we're going to talk about the differences between uh, an adversarial style, a more neutral arbiter style, and a player advocate style. And we're going to talk about what kind of games work for each of those styles. And if you are trying to design towards one of those kind of styles, some steps you should take and some things you should probably keep in mind. They're sort of like classic um, games that we could use to reference what each of these mean. Like what, what would sure. define like the adversarial role? Is there a game that comes to mind? I can only think of one game that I would play that's considered adversarial, so I'm probably not the person to ask. Well, say it anyway. Well, I meant I actually mentioned it when we were talking about novelty games. Uh, Soth is basically, I mean, obviously you respect the people you're in the group with, but it's the GM's job to play against the players, and essentially, you know. And how does it do that? How the mechanics of the game work is the it, it's diceless. There's so there's no random chance at all in the game. So, what players as players do? Players take certain actions they to try to accomplish their goal of create of doing the three rights of Soth to summon him into the world. The GM, as they do these actions, the GM gets a resource called Suspicion, which they spend on things that they're to destroy the PACs. Basically, they have to. It's the GM's job to try to optimize how they spend their Suspicion. It's kind of neutral arbiter because it's like because it's part of the game mechanics that you're adversarial and it's and you have to play by the rules and it is definitely you are being the rule system of the game but you are also trying to outsmart the players. Hmm. I would say that D and D is the ultimate example of the adversarial GM because that's how with D and D that's how the concept of the GM was introduced. Hmm. Yes, but you can definitely play GM D and D as not an adversarial DM. So, you know, back in the early days, it was all adversarial, right? There's two games that I would suggest are probably adversarial. I think one is Paranoia, and then the other is the OSR games that subscribe to the idea that the dungeon is meant to be a meat grinder uh, mm-hmm. for for players. So that that's that's an outgrowth of D and D. D and D. I in the early days, I think you're right. Um, it really the dungeon was was meant to be more of a battery of obstacles. Well, more so than that, the GM was meant to be the enemy of the players. Hmm. Yeah, there was a, there's an adversarial tone in the books and in, in the in the first edition books, but they are also there's also um, many references to refereeing the game uh, and for fairness. And I think I think I would probably classify original D and D as a game that wanted the GM to be more of a neutral arbiter uh, in that they were not supposed to hold anything back, but that they weren't supposed to actively thwart uh, player agency. Well, back in the day, player agency was not what we know it to be now. Right. And there's that. And then there's also like the, the, the counter example to my point, which is basically the, the, um, the tomb of horrors, which is the, 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 the fuck you of all fuck you to players. <laughs> Because uh, it's just like more or less. If you've never read the Tome of Horrors, um, don't get somebody to run it for you, and you'll see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's hilariously punishing. 
and don't get upset if you die because you will. Yeah. <laughs> but paranoia is different uh, in that it encourages the GM to be adversarial towards the players in that it tries to make the GM pit the players against each other, which is a different kind of adversarial. Because that's, that's a very interesting yeah. GM role. Yeah, that's an instigation rather than a straight-up adversary. Yeah, but I would classify it as an adversarial style because you are trying to you're trying to disrupt the players. Maybe that's not a good definition for adversarial, but that, that that's probably mo- I would classify it as adversarial if I had to pick one of the three. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. But uh, paran- paranoia is also kind of in its weird way. Uh, it's kind well, you're trying to get them on technicalities. It's very much essentially it's possible to play paranoia that where the GM is a neutral arbitrator if all your players are naturally going to try to kill each other. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true, yeah. You're, you're, you're In that just, case, he doesn't need to instigate. Yep. It's just basically if everybody knows and wants to play paranoia as a, as a chance to figure out the wacky, insane ways they can try to kill each other, um, mm-hmm. you need to just... Feed the universe as the rules are written, and try and try to go with whatever makes the most paranoia logic sense, not actual sense. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then for neutral arbiter, the one that jumps to mind for me is GURPS. That seemed. I mean, maybe that's just the way I played it. It doesn't go out of its way to define the GM as anything but a referee to maintain the simulation of the game and and i don't know if it really even talks about the story that much but it definitely talks about you know the gm's job of handling the rules although i haven't really read the new edition in depth so i'm really referencing gurps third edition more than anything else um it's uh they're up to sixth so they're up to what sixth are they really i thought it was fourth yeah the last big release nope there's sixth edition gurps Really? Yep. I'm going to Google that right now. Okay. I don't think that's true. Uh, I find that, like, the more, uh, basically, the more clearly defined the rules are on every single thing, uh, like, in a weird simulist way, the, the more the game is inclined to a neutral arbitrator, because the more the, okay, actually, not just in general, but specifically, if the adversarial threats are as a, are a direct result of, like, game mechanics, then, then the GM does not need to institute, like, does not need to go after the players as an instant of their own free will if the game will do it for them, so that lends itself more to more to the neutral style, arbitrator style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we are joined by Catrice. Say hi. Yeah, sorry. All right. <laughs> Sorry, it was like a friend's birthday, so I was a little bit late. Oh, no problem at all. Um, and I and uh, GURPS is up to fourth edition, not sixth. I was right. Really? I could have swore I was reading at least fifth edition stuff the other day when I was doing research. Huh, maybe. Uh, well, on their webpage, the most recent one is fourth edition. Were you thinking of Hero? No, I know <laughs> Hero is in sixth edition. Hmm. But I was all over the GURPS forums, and I could have swore some threads were re- referencing fifth and sixth. Oh, could be. Maybe they were. Uh, maybe they're talking about a supposed new, like what they would do, a hypothetical. Yeah, I'm not going to claim to break any news here, right? And I <laughs> could be wrong, but I heard it here anyway, first, folks. Yeah, <laughs> no, you didn't. Curbs fifth edition. <laughs> they definitely did. Uh, there, I think there's a new, like, branch. I think the the dungeon fantasy 
Kickstarter like was like kind of like a soft edition. I'm not sure. Could be. Well, to get back on topic. Yeah. Um, I would say that the default mode of the GM, despite its origins, has come to be defaulted as a neutral arbiter unless the game says otherwise. I agree with that. I was going through my RPG library and far and away it's sort of the neutral arbiter I think is the the default um, with a few examples here and there that are, are opposite to it. But Yeah, I agree. Uh, I the, where, where I see the advocate most often is in the Powered by the Apocalypse stuff. Yep. Um, and then it's offshoots as well. Uh, the Blades in the Dark as well, and um, um, games of that ilk. Uh, Fate also, I think, is strongly slanted towards player advocacy as a GM's position. You know, you are yep. you are supposed to be a fan of the players and help them through the the narrative um, with them being the protagonists in mind. Um, I think I did that in Ashes. I think that's that's pretty clear that that the players are the protagonists and the GM's there to help them along their story, but also not to pull any punches. It's a weird position I'm kind of asking the GMs to take. Um, It's not that weird of a position. Like, if you want to have the GM, you know, have near unlimited power, you can't really have them be, you know, trying to win because they'll automatically win. You kind of want them to you know give the players something to do but you also want them to give the players a challenge because if there's no challenge then it's not really fun well more so than giving them a challenge is giving them a chance well yeah Mm. you you need both like if it's if they just flop over dead instantly because there's no chance then it's not really a challenge is it like for it to be a challenge there has to be the potential for failure yeah, I would argue, I mean, I think my GMing style personally is one where I try and take into account the player's abilities to the, as best I can, and then set up things that look impossible, but are surmountable, just because that seems to provide the most amount of enjoyment. But it's a tricky balance, and sometimes I don't get it right. Like, there was, yeah. I, I was running a game of um, Dark Heresy, and... Uh, I, I one of the one of the pre-written adventures I was running through one of the uh shit what was it called <clears throat> Harlock trilogy or something like that anyway it was it was a hardcover adventure book and most of it was pretty good but there was a section where it strips the players of all their gear and sort of puts them in this place where they have to get their gear back and they went to the place where they thought their gear was it it was like a near TPK because they sort of charged ahead and I didn't I didn't pull any punches and they just got lit up and like all of them went down at one point and they spent fate points to get away and it 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 nearly it nearly ended the campaign like one player stopped playing because of that and uh yeah so well there's a lesson for you like read ahead and don't Try not to do that because, you know, it it, it it probably because it felt more unfair than anything else. I think it was it was a very one sided combat. I probably should have delivered more of a warning, although I thought I was being clear. But, you know, how there's there's a weird dynamic that goes on when 
the players are told that there's danger ahead and then they assume they can handle the danger because that's the game they're playing. And then it turns out that they can't and you were warning them the whole time that they couldn't and they were just like, okay, that's fine. And then it turns out that they can't and bad feelings erupt. Yeah. It happens sometimes. Like it's definitely happened to me. That's a known issue just in general for communication. Uh, mm-hmm. with puzzles or difficulty or anything. It's well-known, like, video game design, at least, especially in puzzle games, because there's always, like, at least one puzzle in any puzzle game, which the designer thought was, oh, this will be easy for them, and everybody who plays it is like, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> right. And then they, at the same time, the players also run into one where they think it's like really easy and it's like that was the hardest one I put in there right sometimes it's just not clear sometimes you have different cues as well like you mentioned that they were all basically out of gear Mm -hmm. anything you tell them oh it looks dangerous well yeah it looks dangerous because we don't have any gear on right that's probably where their minds went. That's that's possible. Uh, we discussed they they had gotten some gear back by that point, and they had a psyker with them, so it's not like they were totally unarmed. But yeah, it was it was a it was a fiasco for sure. I probably wouldn't have I probably wouldn't run it the same way again for a different group for sure, for sure. And I and I learned a lesson that day about what. What keeps a game going? <laughs> okay, so my my question is, at what point did it become one-sided? Was it written to be one-sided? Did, did the combination of this particular module and your party of PCs make it one-sided? Did random happenstance during the play make it one-sided? When did that happen? Uh, I would say during the the writing of the module itself. So it it becomes apparent at some point during the encounter that this is the this is the stronghold of the group that kidnapped them, and very probably all your stuff is inside. It's also a weapons dealer, and they're very heavily guarded, and it gives you like what the guards have, and it includes grenades and. Against unarmored targets, grenades are really nasty in that particular system. You know, there's difference. Obviously, grenades are different in all systems. Sometimes they're really powerful. Sometimes they're not worth using. But in in Dark Heresy, they ride this strange line between, like, not worth using against targets with armor. And against unarmored targets, they're hilariously effective. So, like, three guards threw grenades all at the same time, and the PCs were all clustered together. And that's what they would do. So it was just, it was like a near wipe on that. So it, it seemed like that's the way it was written. Probably the writer didn't intend for all, for three grenade, three guards to throw grenades all at once. But I couldn't see any other way of it playing out logically. So I was probably leaning towards the neutral arbiter position and in doing so became the, adversarial gm because i i I couldn't see any other way for it to play out if i was doing the quote-unquote logical thing for these characters Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's one of the biggest things people need to understand about games in general, is what's realistic is not necessarily fun. Actually, a lot of the time, it's quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, if you try to make your game too realistic in the rules and how you interpret the rules or anything else, it's probably going to suck. You kind of have to focus on what is actually going to be enjoyable here rather than what would people actually do in this situation? I think that depends on your players too, because I think there are certain players that, that seek out the realism of it. Like, I don't think there's just a, this is fun because it gives you the most excitement for the situation. Like some people that are very particular about the, uh, I don't know, realist aspect of games simulationist i guess yeah and they get upset if the simulation isn't delivering Hmm. the expected results from the input you put into the system yeah well i think the the dichotomy there is that the people who really want something to be hyper realistic when the fun part of it for them is the realism they don't want a game they they want a simulation there is actually a difference between the two. It's like for computer game version, like there's a big difference between, you know, just flying around in a spaceship and shooting stuff and then actually having, you know, something like uh, Microsoft's um, flight simulator. Right. Every RPG is a simulation to some degree, but there is a difference between you know, roll to fire your shotgun and roll for every pellet that came out of that shotgun's hit location. Yeah, the the biggest difference, I'd say, is the order of it. Like, if you have somebody who mostly wants a game, they want enough realism for the willing suspension of disbelief. If you have somebody who wants a simulation, then they basically want it to be as close to reality as possible and anything that deviates from reality actually removes fun from them even if it would have been uh, more game like or fun otherwise i think those are two totally different markets and i'm not entirely of the opinion that it's even possible to cater to both at the same time there's probably no matter what dichotomies exist, there's probably a game that manages to fall into the sweet spot between them in in some way. I, I would agree with that. I, I would say that like most games, I would say it's hard to find games that fall into the sweet spot of many dichotomies. That is true. But given any particular dichotomy, there is yeah. a game that falls on that sweet spot. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um and and you know what, that sweet spot is different for people as well. Um you know, for some people GURPS is the sweet spot of game versus simulation. Um for for me it's not because it's like the simulative aspects of GURPS actually tend to produce hilariously absurd results. And so yeah, it doesn't really work as a sim, but the game aspects of it are not not as good as they could be either. 
I'd like to make one clarifying point, just to point out that I was aiming more for, like, what the, like, not the average person, but, like, the extremes. Like, if you have somebody who's really into full-on simulations, then you're not going to please them with something that is anything less than almost perfect simulation. Mm-hmm. Like, once you get the people that are on the extremes, you can't please both at the same time. If you please the people with a middle ground, then you're angering both of the extremes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. but you can often distract the simulationists with story. If you can put put them in a compelling story, they'll forget that they wanted the deep, heavy, hyper-detailed simulation. Hmm. The trick is, in telling the story, is to keep all the players in the game moment and not let them fall into the metagame moment of anal- of always analyzing the rules. Right, right. And that becomes tougher the more rules your game has. Would you say? Would you agree with that? For the most part, yeah. Okay. Sorry, just to check. What was the last line said? The question itself, sorry. Question, wait, what, the, what I just said? Yeah. Oh, I would say that the more rules a game has, the harder it is to stop players from falling into the uh trap of trying to um make the story happen by analyzing analyzing the rules you know or or for go to progress i mean rephrase that to progress through the story through rules analysis rather than uh following the narrative which does happen sometimes i've definitely done that as a player i'd say it's more of a bell curve i don't think it's like an equal bell on either side but i would say that up to a certain point if you don't give them enough rules to structure things it actually becomes more difficult to follow the narrative and they'll start blindly following the rules more often just because that's the only thing they have to work with if you give them too many rules they either start ignoring a lot of the rules or they start basically looking to the rules to solve absolutely everything. Hmm. But it's going to go one way or the other. I don't think it's necessarily going to be the same. Yeah, I can buy that. Mm -hmm. Especially the asymmetrical curve part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so what... um, Shit, I don't know. Did we just run through that topic pretty quick? No. I'm pretty sure we can... (laughs) I'm pretty sure we can keep going. Um, Almost guaranteed. I think think they're different dimensions you could take this in yeah it's just uh in terms of like we talked about games and how they're structured differently in terms of what style of gm i think fits each game best i think there's also the idea of a a game master having their own style and i think rob you touched on this with your own personal style that you can bring to a game that maybe changes the way it plays like if you if you approached um uh, one of the systems I'm most familiar with is the Edge of the Empire system, where you could play that like you are the um, the advocate, and that you are 100% the fan of the PCs. You're doing everything to enable them to tell a compelling story that puts them in the spotlight. But you could also play it incredibly adversarially, where you are the uh, uh, trying to find every opportunity to put them down and um shut them out and try to show them just how brutal the galaxy is um and i think that there are certain systems that are flexible enough to this and others that don't stand up um so there's there's another 
I guess, aspect to consider of what games enable the GMs to be able to flex how they want to play the game. And when we're designing our games, what what mechanisms do we have in place for GMs or or how rigid are we in our definition of what the GM should do or needs to do in order to play the game that um, suits the style that either we prefer or that our game needs? I don't think it's possible for a game to be as rigid with regard to GM style as the author would hope. Like there's always a way for the GM to carve his own style out of the rigidity that the game has proposed. Absolutely. But that I could, I could argue then that you, uh, so taking a step back, let's say you've got a game like, uh, I think Marvel heroic does it where you have uh, a resource pool that the GM builds and then expends to be able to um, affect the game or, or increase the challenge to the players. Um, and you could play that without really taking advantage of it, but the mechanism is there in order to give the GM the opportunity to um, be adversarial. That opportunity was there anyway. It, the the game just decided Justifies to it. mechanize the Correct. opportunity. It justifies it to the players. It says that this game is going to have an opportunity for the GM to be mean to you, to be adversarial. Right. And that way it's it's known to the players and to the GM that this is within the ability of the game to, to do this. Um, so I think that that's an opportunity for the game to say the GM is being adversarial in these moments when they use this resource. Um, Edge of the Empire has the same thing when the destiny exactly. pool, when the yeah. destiny flips to the light side versus dark side. So the GF is expected to use those because the players need to have the the light side destiny to do stuff every so often. Exactly. And the only way that cam- comes back, yeah, is by the GM spending resources on making things harder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a mechanism I like uh, because mainly because of my own GMing style where I don't, I, when I was running edge of the empire, I almost never used it. Even though those, those kinds of mechanics rationalize the GM positioning to the players that by doing so, they restrict the GM. Well, that's kind of what you have to do in that position. If the GM is godlike and can do anything they want and the players are viewed as enemies, the GM will win 100% of the time. If God just decides to smite them because God feels like it, they're fucked. There is no stopping it unless you basically limit the GM to such a point that you basically hand them a script to read that they can't deviate from. And once you start restricting them that much... It almost doesn't matter if you have the GM present. Like, you may as well be playing the computer game because you've pre-told the GM what they are allowed to do in every situation. Mm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with that particular point only because a resource pool doesn't dictate action. A resource pool only dictates frequency of action. Right. If if the GM is dead set on being all-powerful and vindictive... The resource pool doesn't matter. Then one, yeah, yeah. If but if the GM is 
cognizant of what they're doing and how they're interacting with the game, then most GMs will exercise some form of restraint against their all-powerful nature. Yeah. And it's it's a little different in a scenario where the GM spending their resource gives the players back theirs. It It softens the blow a little bit because the players understand that they're getting something for being for for the GM temporarily let's say screwing them over in quotes even though they're not being screwed over they're the story is happening around them this enemy is going to be a little more accurate or a little more damaging in this moment um and then you understand that you're getting something for that that's a different mechanism than simply giving the GM like this is something okay so where I think your criticism kind of applies is more in the Powered by the Apocalypse games, where the GM actually has a list of moves, and those moves have have outcomes. And it's never s- sat with me all that well that the GMs have moves, and I wish that Fred was here to defend Powered by the Apocalypse games, because <laughs> I think he'd have a better defense than one I can muster. Um because I'd I'd rather steel man the point and and then argue against it, but I don't I don't have a good defense of that GMing style because when I was running, so the two games I can contrast here are um, Blades in the Dark and, and Dungeon World. Those are both games I've run. Dungeon World, the GM had a list of moves that the GM was supposed to use when players uh, failed to do stuff. Yeah, roll the six minus. And Blades in the Dark as I recall, doesn't have that mechanism contained within it. Um, which is why I tend to refer to Blades in the Dark and Powered by the Apocalypse as as two different games. I think they're divergent enough, even though there's a framework there that's similar. I think they're divergent enough that they weren't being treated differently, um, or at least design-wise. Because the Blades in the Dark system doesn't have a list of GM moves, when I was running it, I felt less constrained. As you said, Kat, like, I didn't have this, this list of things I could do in a given situation. I, I, was, I, I had more freedom to narrate the actions of the environment and the world uh, as I saw fit for what the, what the next logical thing to happen was, um, rather than have a list of arbitrary moves. Now it's quite possible that I was using that list badly. That's, you know, I only run Dungeon World twice. um, And so it's quite possible I just wasn't good at it. Uh, But I didn't, I felt like it was an unnecessary constraint on what I was supposed to be doing. I might be able to give a bit of a defense for it. Go for it. Apocalypse World and all the Powered by the Apocalypse, Powered by the Apocalypse games, tend to have a different role for the GM than in the more traditional combat-ish games. Um, Basically, they're building themselves more around the concept that the GM is the one in charge of the narrative. When it comes down to, like, combat or specific things that they can do, those are far more structured because the GM's more so not there to tell them this happens at this time. It's more to present the setting and to play the NPCs and just generally do pretty much everything except like 
running those particular things. They're supposed to do only the soft things, more or less, and the hard, uh, straightforward things like, do you succeed or fail? Those are far more mechanically handled than left to the GM. Like, the GM's basically, they're really only for the soft parts of the game. Hmm. That's that's the underlying concept of all the games that came off of the Forge, is basically it's it's a kind of a coup on the part of the players to wrest every bit of power and authority they could from the GM. Wait a second, explain that a little bit. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't quite I don't quite get that in context. Um, every well, Blades in the Dark, Powered by the Apocalypse, Fate. Mm-hmm. Everything that came from the Forge, the so-called narrative school of RPGs, the the core concept that they all share is um, stripping the GM of power and giving it to the players. Hmm. I don't know that I. So they're they're called narrative games, but not because they didn't, not because they invented narrative, but but in that they gave players mechanics to assert themselves over the narrative and in doing so those assertions are taken away from the gm hmm that's an interesting way of framing it uh i'm not sure i entirely agree with the with the assessment that it's taking power away from the gm i think if i can frame it a different way i think it's kind of making the pie bigger in that, so let's say the GM in a, in a game, like in a traditional uh, D&D type game, the pie is the whole game. The players get a slice of pie that is their character. It's a thin slice, and the GM controls the rest of the pie. I think in the Powered by the Apocalypse games, they're simply making the pie bigger, and so the the players have a bigger slice but it doesn't i don't think it's taking anything away from the from the gm i think the gm is just as mm, no maybe i'm wrong okay no there's there's certain things that the gm definitely does not have as much control over it's either handled by the players more directly or is automated so that the, the gm is not the one in charge of it Technically, the designer is the one more in charge of it. I'm not sure that's the case either. I think it... it... Well, just look at your own example with, like, the GM's moves that they can use. That's right. very directly a restriction on what the GM can do, and it's very directly handed by the designer to the players, basically, because they can choose what to do, and the GM doesn't have a lot of control over it until they act first. The GM becomes a much more reactionary role instead of proactive. That's that's definitely the case. Yeah. The, and the same thing can be said for fate aspects. Those things would normally be done by the GM, but it's taken from the GM and given to the players in a form of metacurrency. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm actually rethinking this in real time. So I'm trying to figure out the power by the apocalypse game. Okay. So when they give the GM a move set and they generally tell the GM, unless I'm mistaken, 
and Kev jump in if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, uh, the, the Power by Apocalypse games give the GM a move set. They tell the GM when they're allowed to use those moves. Yes. But they don't, they don't tell the GM what those moves have to look like. Mm-hmm. They just sort of they just sort of codify the stuff that a GM does normally. So would would you say that's a fairly correct assessment? More or less, yeah. Just the fact that the GM is being given a set of moves that they're allowed to execute is putting shackles on them compared to a more traditional traditional game. Given what some of these are, I I guess technically, but they it's kind of yeah. Yes, they are shackled. No, no. What's what? They are shackled, right? Well, but it's, it's. I'd actually say less along the lines of shackling and more towards pointing them in a given direction is what they're yes. trying to go for. But depending on the specific game and how they write those moves, the moves can either be fairly broad with a fair bit you can do with it. Or it can basically be running the game on rails. Like, you may as well be on a train instead of a car. Like, difference is, are you on a road or railroad track? To their credit, these games do put effort into not being the game on rails. Yeah, a lot of effort. I don't don't think... I'm trying to think of a single example where the GM moves are game on rails. The general list of when you use moves is A, if the action's line, B, as a response to something the players did, which is the most common, because, you know, the players decide when things happen, basically. That's the, the core conceit of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, a lot of them say, okay, I'll just use Urban, how Urban Shadows phrases it, because it's a really good way to say it. A player hands you a golden opportunity. It's like, just do it when, it, when it's too perfect not to. You're, you're allowed. We're not going to say oh, that's a terrible thing to do. You shouldn't do it. Well, that's one thing I think that you had said right there as a, as a prime example of this, is it's not the GM who tells you when stuff happens, it's the players who are in charge of what happens. It's very much so what we were saying earlier about it's giving the players control where it was traditionally the GM's uh, point mm-hmm. of authority to have that. Yes, there is that. Right, it's 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 a it's a soft coup in a way. The other thing that GM moves do, and I think this goes a long way towards their popularity, is GM moves and fate points and meta currency and all that stuff. Um, is a really effective way of normalizing the play loop. Hmm. Hmm. It tells everybody exactly when things happen. Yeah. Since the players are, are privy to the to the GM moveset just by virtue of them being in the rule book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the players then know like, oh, okay. So the GM, like even if their GM is not saying like, oh, I use this move because you're actually not supposed to say that. Right. By the, you're not, the yes. GM's not supposed to say that. The GM's supposed to narrate the thing and then derive the outcome in a particular way and the players go like, Oh, okay. I, that, that falls an expected, uh, sequence, sequence or pathway yeah. forward or, or, uh, sequence. Yeah. Sequence is a good, if you, word. if you haven't read the rules, you still end up with 
a consistent pattern in the game that you play. Like even if you were to not acutely try to think what moves did the GM just use, you could start to realize after session after session that the game plays in a certain way. Mm, I see. Which I think is actually one of the most important parts of game design to understand is that in general, players do not want things to be completely random with no rhyme or reason. They want there to be structure. However, they don't want it to be predictable structure either. They want it to be more chaotic. They want it to be within fixed limits that make sense, but they don't want to be able to see it coming before it happens kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a tricky line to walk for sure. As a GM, I (laughs) want... what I want is pretty much what you described as what players want, so, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> that's kind of the reason why role-playing games were such a big deal, and they have been, is specifically because you have a human mind there that can listen to, like, what's going on and understand context and build things out of that context. So... A mind that looks for patterns actively. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. because you have a human mind there, you kind of have to have something that makes a sort of logical sense because we have a really hard time as humans come up with stuff that's completely arbitrary. It is really hard to generate a completely random number. If you ask any human to generate like a hundred random numbers, they're going to be really hard pressed to not start generating patterns just automatically on their own right in fact their attempt at randomness will produce a lot of very predictable numbers like 17 23 primes they'll name primes early on yeah and they'll and they'll tend to um they'll tend towards odd numbers instead of evens yes yeah because odd numbers feel more random yeah, it, it's an interesting trick of human psychology, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And even if you hand a human a block of random numbers, they will try, they will find patterns in it, even yeah, if it yeah. was an actual block of random numbers. <laughs> yep. Interestingly, yeah. in 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 Legendcraft, wherever I describe a die roll, mm-hmm. the the value I use as the example is always thirty seven. Why? Just because you're a pedantic weirdo? Um, A, it's consistent, and B, uh, 37 is a prime. So you're a pedantic weirdo is what you were saying. Because you both (laughs) the uh, tens and the ones numbers, they're both three away from zero. See? Okay, you're also a pedantic weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) More so than me. The podcast full of pedantic weirdos, that's what I think. Actually. Just in different, unique ways. Yeah, different, different ways for sure. Yeah. See, that's you. We're being RPG designers. That's exactly. Mm-hmm. We're RPG designers. We're all pedantic weirdos to some degree. Well, more oh, than yeah. that, we're also going to be naturally prone towards making patterns where you wouldn't see them otherwise. Yeah. So, that's just kind of how it is but that's not necessarily a bad thing it just becomes a bad thing when the patterns become overly predictable where you can start seeing things the gm's going to do long before they do it and i think that's one of 
the issues with giving moves in general is you're kind of, you're not fully railroading them, but you're basically nudging them towards a certain flavor of how they uh, deal with most problems. So when you limit them in that way, they're going to create patterns that are more noticeable than they would be otherwise. Hmm. Well, okay, here's the thing. The GM moves, what they do is they establish a mechanical pattern. It's Mm -hmm. still the onus of the particular GM in the moment to not create narrative patterns. There's a difference there. Oh, there definitely Uh, is. But when you have a certain mechanical pattern, people are going to view it in terms of certain narrative more frequently. Well, a single GM move is probably written in such a way, and Cav, you can back me up on this. Put someone in danger. Let me read three on the page I'm looking at. Surface of conflict, ancient or modern. Put someone in danger, inflict or trade harm. Right. Yeah, those are written broadly enough that they don't necessarily always have to produce the same narrative yeah, texture. They often will, though. Like, keep in mind, like, look back to the most, one of the most basic mechanics that existed for years was the idea of the critical fumble. You rolled a one. What happens? Oh, I dropped my weapon. It's like that was almost the universal thing that everybody went to. It's an opening up of a concept. Something went badly, but this is what everybody views it as. That's the difference I'm talking about. Rolling a one is the mechanical pattern. Saying that that narrates as you dropped your weapon is the narrative pattern. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that if you have even a very broad mechanical pattern that could be turned into almost any narrative, it doesn't mean that it actually will. What it means is that as a human, you're probably going to favor certain narratives very frequently when you see that mechanical pattern. They're just going to jump into your mind as, oh, I know what this means. Okay, but a a more skilled GM will know to not fall into those narrative habits whenever when presented the mechanical opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, is there... So... You could say rolling a one is, oh, you you got caught off balance and threw your sword, and now it's lodged in the ceiling beam. Right. So the question is, what could we do as designers that would help a new GM be able to act closer to a skilled GM so they avoid those pitfalls? Absolutely. That's a really good question. I dodged the issue entirely in my game by not having critical fumbles at all because I hate that shit. Uh, well, fair. It's not just critical <laughs> fumbles. It's any mechanical thing that I, you I derive know. narrative from. Yeah, but. so in Ashes, the, the mechanical things are are fairly tightly entwined with the narrative so that the GM's by virtue of including different mechanics are going to have different narratives at their fingertips. That's how I solve the problem at least. Um, 
I, I gave, I gave enemies and organizations and, and these are things that can be player facing as well, not just GM facing uh, organizations, but I, I made sure that these things had narrative heft and in addition to mechanical heft, I think, I think anything you include in your game that you want the players to notice and care about should have both. And, mm-hmm. and in doing so, I made it such that the GM, I tried to give the GM tools for creating a story around the mechanics that they wanted to include or vice versa. So if they wanted to do a story where let's say, uh, okay, so in, so in ashes, their, their calling would be protect society, right? So the players have decided they, they want to start to try and figure out how to rebuild or maintain their local economy. And then inside that, the GM can go like, okay, great. So I'm going to have uh, an antagonist that would benefit from destroying the local economy. And then simply because of that antagonist motivation, they're going to come in conflict with the players. And that gives and, and have a mechanical reinforcement for that. So the players want to uh, stop this guy from achieving his aim because they gain experience for doing so because that's their stated goal. And the GM gets to mess around with the economics of the situation if they so choose. In in terms of the story, they can have this guy disrupting trade routes or um, or even causing inflation by flooding the market with 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 cheap currency or you know any stage along that continuum and i do want to point out that the meta currency in my game isn't at no point is gm facing um the meta currency that's available to the players in the form of weird and dread um the positive meta currency is player facing and the negative currency is is player facing i don't force gms to be antagonistic if they're they don't want to because that's that's a problem I found in games like Fate and Edge of the Empire, where it encourages the GMs to to use their meta currency against the players. And I would, as a GM, often forget to do that because I could just make an encounter arbitrarily more difficult. And that's the way I've played games since I was a kid. And I didn't need that that extra oomph. And so I wouldn't use it. And so the players would actually be denied meta currency based on my failing to utilize the game mechanics properly makes sense. And so an at, yeah. And so an, I'm sorry, say that again. That makes sense. Uh, I have a different perspective. Yeah. You finish your, your point first. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you're going to say. Um, but in making the negative meta currency player facing and also making it a feature of the game world. So it's not just meta currency. I, I took that out of the GM's hands and put it in the players and we'll, so far in playtests, that's been effective and interesting because now the players decide when they eat this meta currency and turn it back into their positive meta currency. Um, and so far, that's been fun because there's a push pull mm-hmm. uh, dynamic that's going on that seems to be interesting to people. But we'll see if it's effective across other groups when other people start running it because it very well may not be. That's um, super interesting because. Um the way that I've designed the, that kind of currency in my game was because I had in mind that I wanted to provide the GM with guidance. I wanted to provide the GM with a way mm-hmm. to 
spontaneously uh, interact with the players that didn't feel, um, I guess, like they were responsible for coming up with it, that it was a way that I could codify here is a resource that you have, and now you can interact with the players on a different level than you were previously. Or it, it buys you the opportunity to say, um, the portcullis comes up and closed, like shuts between two halves of your team. So now I've forced a separation between the, the players. And that could be something that happens in any game, and I don't necessarily need to have a currency for it. But by including the currency, I'm saying that I'm giving the opportunity for the GM that if they're new to the game or they're new to the style that I want to present, that they're able to introduce these elements through the currency and have a justification for it. Um, and I really like what you're doing with your game because I think that's a uh, it flips it on its head and it really puts it in the players to say, I want to step up the challenge. And because I've chosen to play this on hard mode, now I'm going to get a bigger reward for it. But I... Um, it, it it breaks a little bit of the um, uh, simulation of it. It it makes it more gamey, right? Because now you can say, "Well, I'm I've just finished a long rest, and all my spell slots have restocked, so I'm going to go with uh, hard mode right now, and then we'll see how far we make it through the rest of the game uh, before we reset." Um, and I'm I'm not sure how that will play out. I'm not sure how it'll work for other groups or other GMs that don't have you at the table. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's why I I approached it with my intention um, was that I I guess we're trying to do the same thing, accomplish the same goal, but we approached it in very different angles. Yeah. I'm curious to see how it works out. Um, Well, I can explain, I can explain why, what I had to do in order to make that work. Mm. Um, and the 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 main thing is that you I had to limit I had to do two things both limit the amount of currency the players had access to metal wise mm-hmm. and also make that currency valuable enough that they want to spend it on f- quite frequently and so in order to get it back they have to face dread mm-hmm. and in doing so they are taking a risk but it's it's built into the game that you are going to have a very tough time if you don't do it. And there are in facing the thing you f- fear the most, the uncertainty of, of, of the dread table, right. Which can, can be quite nasty. Um, you are, you are rewarded disproportionately to the, the, the actual outcome of that table most of the time. And so I'm, I'm also trying to, I mean, this is, perhaps an exceedingly lofty idea, maybe way too ambitious, but I am actually trying to psychologize the the players into facing their own personal fears more often. It's really cool. Well good luck. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> as a as a uh an out of game concept that sounds awesome. And I, I really love the idea that you've presented in game. Um because I think that that's really powerful and to to be able to say like i i don't know i love the idea of this uh game resource represents something that your characters are choosing to face like the dread builds in the background and then you Mm -hmm. you have to say i need to come to terms with that dread um and i think that's that's really fascinating i'm really excited to see how that game turns out 
Um, yeah, it's been working so far in the in the in the three playtests I've done since I implemented that system. It's been it's been pretty fun. Players are I would say they start out like hyper conservative with their approach to the game, and then when they realize that it's not as bad as they think when it happens, like when when dread actually triggers like once or twice, mm. then they go like, okay, let's let's delve into this a bit more. And I that's kind of the reaction I was expecting, and I was I was pretty happy to get that reaction. Um, mm. So but we'll see if it happens at other tables. It's like right. I, I don't know, you know. So to bring it back to topic, um, I think both of us implemented these ideas to be able to sort of have. Um, a structured adversarial role for the GM. Like it's, it's a way of providing you with this huge amount of challenge um, that players can seek out. I don't, is that correct? Is it really adversarial or is it just instructive? Mm, in my case, it's not, it's, it, I'm doing it. So the GM doesn't have to be adversarial. The game is going to do it. Mm. So I'm taking the onus off the GM to be, the player's adversary and letting the mechanics of the game be the player's adversary and leaving the GM to be the player's advocate. Mm-hmm. At least that's the intent. So, yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. I think, I think that's similar then it's sort of a, or I guess the way that I've tried to approach it is that a, there's a justification for the, the GM to be uh, an enemy. And then once that you've spent that resource, then you're back to being the, mm-hmm. um, the facilitator, the moderator of the player's story. Right, right, so. right. So it sort of like allows, so there's a concept in, um, uh, shit, what's the other game? Uh, the Numenara, the Monty Cook's, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the Strange called the GM Intrusion. Correct. And the Intrusion is the, uh, when, I think it's when a player rolls a one, or I can't remember exactly when it happens. I only played the game the one time. Um, but the GM just gets to do a thing which is very similar to the Power by the Apocalypse moves, except it doesn't trigger every time. It triggers on a very specific instance of uh, of a player-driven mechanic, I think. Right. I could be wrong. But I no, think I, it, it I codifies think right. it. Yeah. It codifies it as an intrusion. And I think that's a good that's a good word to use in that particular case. So that's a great point. Um, and the way that I think they do it is on a, a, an instance base. So there's a trigger and then a response. Um, mm-hmm. like there, like you said, there's someone who, who rolls a one and then there's, uh, the intrusion happens. Um, and, uh, the way that I've tried to do it is unique from both yours and that way, which is that the GM is the trigger. The GM is the one who says, you know, like, I, or I guess there's, um, build up, build up, build up, but the trigger only happens when the GM decides that this is the opportune moment. Like this is the point in the plot. Mm-hmm. I would like to see this resolve. Um, and yours is very much player focused. So the players are the ones who decide this is when we want it to trigger, yeah. um, which is really cool. There's so many permutations that you could use of how you flip the uh, GM role and when the game is acting for the players against the players uh, and who is the one to to call the shots? I think that's a really interesting way of looking at, like, yeah, we'll see. You know, it, it might be interesting, or it might just be, you know, horribly cumbersome on some groups. It's mm-hmm. totally possible. My approach in Legendcraft is somewhat more traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm not doing meta currencies or right. 
GM moves or anything like that. So, um, in my gameplay chapter that explains to everybody what happens in a role-playing game, the way I describe the GM is twofold. And correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, if I'm wrong, Rob, but I think you said you were going to steal some form of this. Oh, totally. Yeah. hundred <laughs> um, percent stole it. <laughs> the, the two things that everything the GM do, does boils down to two things, conducting the simulation and managing the narrative. Yep. I, I stole that word for word. In fact, Okay. Uh, I, oh, I think so, I said I don't. I don't think I think I said maintaining the simulation and conducting the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the part that I haven't written yet is that the players have the responsibility to keep the GM in check. Hmm. hmm. How do they do that? No Cheetos for you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally in a meta space. Um, but. That's why I used a meta-currency. Cheetos. <laughs> okay. I'm designing, I'm designing a game um, around that now. <laughs> oh, God. So it, orange dust. Right. Go ahead. So, like, this is just part of the gameplay that everybody needs. I'm hoping everyone can stay cognizant of is if the GM does something completely ridiculous for bad faith reasons... Mm-hmm. If the players don't call them, don't call the GM out on doing that, and can't be backed off with "hold on, it's going to play out good" or something like that. Mm-hmm. If the GM can't defend what the players see as um, bullshit, bullshit without giving yeah. it away, right. then if they if the players haven't called that out, then they have to live with it once it happens. But the flip side is, if they just start gaslighting the GM on everything, hmm, then right. they're ruining their own experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a dynamic that exists and is not addressed by... I, I can't think of a game that does address that, except... No, actually, I can't think of a game that addresses it. So, Power by the Apocalypse addresses it tangentially mm-hmm. by simply by handing players more narrative control. Um, and so they have an ability to subvert GM bullshit uh, when it happens and incorporate it by virtue of the fact they have a little bit more narrative control than most games give players. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely a dynamic. I mean, like, you know, the, 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 the TPK I was referring to earlier was definitely an instance of GM bullshit. Like it was, I mean, from the player's perspective, let's say. Uh, or anytime you 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 do the uh, here's a very common example the you've been kidnapped before the game starts all your stuff is stolen you're in jail type stuff like I consider that like the height of GM bullshit uh, that is GM bullshit because that ignores everything that was supposed to happen in session zero right even more so when you get a GM that does that but first they make the players all go through and select every single little thing. It's like, you need to actually pay for all of the <laughs> rations, like, at copper level. And then you don't actually start with any of it. Yeah. It's like, don't do and that to people. I've heard stories of that. I've never seen it happen, but yeah, I've heard stories. And my reasoning for presenting the dynamic this way in this 
in this um, mm-hmm. distant approach is to impress upon everyone at the table that this is a collaborative activity. It's a good idea. Even though there's one person with a role and everybody else has distinct but very different roles, you're all collaborating towards the same end. Yeah, and that is mutual enjoyment of the activity. It, you know. mm-hmm. oh. And, well, philosophically, yes, but literally it's collaborative storytelling. Right. One thing I'd like to get into before we're too far away from the previous topic, where you were talking about your games there. Um, it took me a while to sort my thoughts on it. Um, one thing I might want to point out is players are really, really cautious about any kind of metacurrency thing, or not even just metacurrency, but anything that they spend, which has a disconnect between the costs and rewards in terms of permanency. Like, um, for example, if you give a temporary benefit to someone, but it's really powerful, but it has a very small permanent cost, they tend to not like that. Like, you can do double damage for this one hit, but your damage from this point will always be a little bit lower than it would have been otherwise. They will probably never use that. I have a very good example of that. If you want me to, let me just, if I can just jump in for two seconds. And this is a dichotomy that, um, so, okay. So in Star Wars uh, Saga Edition, this is the Wizards of the Coast Star Wars. There was a concept called the Force Point. And the Force Point was a permanent expenditure that gave you a, I think it was a reroll or something. Maybe it was called Destiny. I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, there was a permanent expenditure. You got one per level. It was a permanent expenditure. And it did something pretty badass for one thing. And during the entire, we must have run, my friends are big Star Wars guys. And they, I played at least two, three, four, four different games of that. And uh, not just, not just uh, Saga, but like the previous Watsi ones as well. that had the similar concept. Um, and they were used almost never. I think I remember an instance of it happening once. Like it's very rare. And then the, the new Star Wars, just the Edge of the Empire, has this destiny point thing that refreshes every game session. And those get used all the time. But like the, 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 I think you're absolutely right, Kat. There's a great dichotomy of an example in the, the way the two Star Wars games structured their metacurrency. In, in they made one permanent, but... You know, I I wouldn't even say that they were that powerful. Like, it was a get-out-of-jail-free card. It doesn't have to be powerful. It doesn't have to be overly powerful or overly weak. or Even if it's common, like you have a hundred of them. But if you ever use one, you never get it back. That's the kind of thing that players just put that into the too-good-to-use category. It's the kind of thing that it has to be temporary for temporary. Like, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it kind of thing. But then people tend to... More importantly, I think, and closer to the point, is that um, resources that are awarded and spent need to be replenishable. At least in some way, yeah. Like, if you get it once and you spend it and you can never replenish that players are not going to spend it 
just in general. Yeah. They'll hold on to something that even if they have like a bunch of copies of it, they won't use it until they're forced to. So it's like if you, for example, give them something, you can only hold on to five potions on your character, period. But you pick a potion up off of the body and that of the monster you just killed. Well, somebody's going to drink the potion because it doesn't matter if they're missing one life or a hundred. They're going to use the potion just because they don't really have an option. They can't carry it. They can't do anything with it. It's like, I guess I'm going to use the potion. They're not, they're not going to use their potions when they need to. Like they're more likely to let their character die than use the potion to save their life, which is really weird. I've, I've seen that exact situation go down. Yep. yep. I've, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that has definitely happened mm-hmm. like that, that weird, like corner case of psychology and mechanics where players go, but I could, but I, then if I spend it, I use it forever. It's like, no dude, you're about to eat shit like really hard. You should spend it. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what, this is why you have it. Yeah. Is to spend it in situations like these. Yep. And you have to talk them into it. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a very root, um, aspect of human nature it's a very very core thing uh people that ended up using their resources before they absolutely needed them and sometimes even the ones who used it when they needed it they didn't reproduce because they wiped themselves out because they ate all of their food before they had need for it and oh they all starved stuff like that it's very 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 deeply ingrained in human psychology because everybody who didn't do that is dead yeah at least for a certain period of time in our significant evolutionary history yeah 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 for sure yeah it's been it's been rooted in there really deeply it doesn't seem like it's super important but when it comes to player psychology and trying to get players to use things that are permanent, they will not do it. You can hold the gun to their head, they might not even do it then. And even if they do, they're gonna feel dirty about it. It's not like the potion is a one is the one ring. There are other potions in the world. Right? Like random potion you find on a body is not your precious. <laughs> I've finished campaigns with the cure light wounds potion that I bought at character creation. I'm just saying. It's happened. No, you can <laughs> You can do other ones that are worse, though. Like, let's say you get a potion that if you drink this flask, you are full to full health. Like, you could be near death. You will be suddenly perfectly better. Because it's such a powerful ability, you have to mitigate that. You can't use it on a whim because that would be really broken. There would be no purpose for damage to exist at that point but the primary way to mitigate the power of that is to say okay well you used it it's gone you can't just go to the store and buy another oh you have mountains of gold but i'm not letting you buy 50 of these instant full health potions you just can't have them because even if you employed every alchemist in the countryside, it would still take them three years to fulfill your order. There's always there's always a narrative way out of an economic exploit like that. 
Yeah, that's not the issue. The issue is that you have to apply some reason why you cannot have them. And as soon as you have it so that you can't replenish them, then you've introduced the fact that, okay, this is now something that's too good to use. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because now you've, now you've got hyperinflation and nothing is worth anything. Even right. if you didn't have the hyperinflation, like if you just said, okay, you just can't use this. This is like the opposite of inflation. This is like this becomes worth dramatically more to the point that you can never have, in, I guess, enough money. So inflation of the money in a way uh, that you can never have enough money to make this worth it. Or you tell the players, yes, you can have a crate full of potions of ultimate healing, and the first night after delivery, somebody comes and steals the crate, and now there's a plot hook that originated from player greed. I don't think they'd be very happy with you. <laughs> You're right. This still, get, this still isn't getting away from the fact that we're still leaving the players with an item that's too good to use they will not be using their super healing potions just in general. If they have 50 of like them... Every solution you've come up with winds up with the same problem. Well, we're, if, they can, if they can order a crate on a whim, then they will yeah. use them because they're not a limited resource. Yeah. That's because it's broken. Right. <laughs> the, they become broken because they're not scarce anymore. Right. So, there are ways around this, actually. But it's going to depend on the individual game. Uh, I can think of a solution that would work fine for D&D. It would not work for Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. And that's to basically steal the concept from, like, say, um, a Path of Exile, where... As you fight things and kill things, you basically recharge your potion up with the blood of your enemies kind of thing. It D D, it's a combat game. You're supposed to kill things. You're supposed to be in combat. The more combat you go into, the more rewards you have to keep you in combat so you can keep going. That works perfectly fine in that setting. In any game where the concept is not an endurance run where you're trying to just fight as many enemies as possible, it's not going to work. So you have to custom tailor it to every game. Well, you, at least you have to devise a mechanic. Well, I mean, you know, I get out of that, but I just dodge the issue completely. I don't have, I don't have consumables that aren't imminently refreshable in, in combat, you know? Uh, or, or by virtue of, of some some other means, I, I don't have those kinds of things. I don't have, I don't have potions. I don't have scrolls. I, I mean, I have things that you could narratively describe that way, uh, but I don't have the concept of this. Oh, yeah, I have resources, resources, but I don't have the concept of the single use fire and forget item. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of those those problematic concepts that I I dodged by simply not including it um you know because i i couldn't figure out a, a satisfactory way to to include it and so it got cut I, I, but a lot of games will will not i don't i don't know how to phrase this uh will 
will cut something because they feel players expect it to be there. And I think that's, that's an issue more with games that have been around a long time and are on their fourth, fifth, sixth edition um, where they feel that if they cut this concept, then players will get upset. Um, it won't. It, well, not at the time they will. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. Uh, but but they're they're stuck with these these mechanics that become either cumbersome or inactionable at some point during during a game, and are leaving it up to the GMs to uh, figure a way out of it. Um, yeah, a lot of yeah. You're right. A lot of games will not admit that certain concepts don't fit with the game or are vestigial to the author's intended play style. Right. The way I get around it is emphasizing to everyone that you're in charge of what your game is about. If you don't want it to be about resource management, don't let it be about resource management. Downplay what you want to ignore. Right. Yeah. I mean, but you're, you're making a, 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 a universal slash generic game. You know, so you're you have to include, yeah. Well, you you have to almost everything. That's kind of a cop out to just mm. saying, well, it's on you to do this. It's like, yeah, I understand that, but that's not that easy for people to include, especially if they don't recognize uh, how much of a problem something's going to be until it's mm. too late. Like I have had. A GM, for example, just give everybody way too fucking much money on like a scale of almost a hundred times more than they should have. That's pretty much any game run by eleven-year-olds. Yeah, but th- I mean, this was actually someone a little bit more. Uh, they were a lot better trained, but it was just a game that they weren't used to and it didn't look like money was worth as much as they thought Mm. it was and then when it actually turned out to be worth a lot more than they had first thought it was really hard to take that back yeah so so where lies the fault in that scenario that the gm did not ascertain the economics of the game correctly I think a lot of it just has to do with the presentation of the rules and such, like making it more clear just how important money actually is. Because in a lot of games, they just put like a rule in, but they don't really give an emphasis that, yes, this can get broken really easily if you give too much of it out. Right. There's actually, I mean, yeah, that, there's there's games where progression is based on currency. Um, and there's games where it, like currency doesn't matter. Like first edition D&D where you gained one XP per gold piece you looted. Well, there's that, but there's also games like, I'm talking about more directly, like games like Shadowrun where they, that's a main way to improve your, your stats. Like that's a main form of advancement for your characters is, is to get money to buy better cyberware or better talismans or whatever your character shtick is um it, it literally runs it's a parallel yeah. it's a parallel advancement to your experience yeah like if you look at a game like um say 
almost any White Wolf game, uh, World of Darkness game. Money doesn't really mean a lot in there for the most part in comparison to something like Shadowrun. Like, if you give someone ten times the amount of money in Shadowrun, you have broken the game. And it's going to be really hard to unbreak it at that point. If you give somebody ten times the amount of money they're supposed to have in World of Darkness, where are they going to spend it? Well, yeah, but it they don't even track it. Money is vague and nebulous in World of Darkness, yeah, it's... whereas in Shadowrun or yeah, exactly. other games, it's very real, even though it's... If you're not familiar with the economics of the game, like the literal fiscal situation of the game world, then your money mm-hmm. can twist itself in the mind of the players and even the GM as not... It's no, to where it's no longer money, it's just a form of game score. Like, it's the numbers ringing up on the back of the pinball, pinball machine. Mm. But it's, it's not... It's, but it, it's so abstracted that it doesn't have value or purpose. You also have to be careful with more than just currency. It, it can show up in a lot of different forms. Like, if you have a point-buy system where the points that you're purchasing things with... It looks like you need a lot of points to do stuff. Like, say, oh, if you want to raise your stats, you need, like, 10 points to be able to raise one of your stats one point. It's like, okay, that sounds really expensive. But if you have something else that can be very powerful that only costs two points, you can very easily start giving people way too many points just because they didn't seem valuable. We got have we got have we gotten radically off topic here? I feel like we have. Yeah. But, <laughs> Probably, but hey, who cares? It's 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 still on game science, so whatever. Well, yeah, but we can, should be talking I, about can it. Can I say what I was gonna say? Yeah, go ahead. Um okay, ten points feels expensive when you've only got a hundred, but they're a lot less expensive when you've got a thousand. Yeah, I don't think she was making a point about relative costs. I think I think she was making a point about let's say a stat is relatively high and then this other powerful thing is relatively low. No, actually she was because this is another instance of the basic lesson of game design is that numbers need context. Sure. Yep. Just a straight up number in a vacuum means nothing. Is 5 powerful in some games? Um, yeah, that's the problem. In some games, five is really strong. Other games, five is useless. Like PVTA, if you have plus five on something, you literally can't fail. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you have like five in World of Darkness, like mm-hmm. we were talking about for one of your stats, that's as high as it goes without like magic right, and right. stuff. If you have five in D and D, you are woefully under equipped yeah, to do anything right, right, with right. that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get this back on topic to the GM uh style. So Kat, your game has a defined position as the GM in that your the GM is expected to play a character. Am I or if I'm am I misreading it? Uh sort of. Yeah. Basically the GM can play multiple characters, but the, there is a direct, there is an avatar of the GM that they basically set foot in and say, okay, I am 
directly overseeing you. I have a physical body. I have actual abilities. If you speak with me, you are actually speaking with me directly, or at least you can. So what's the intent behind that? There's a couple of different reasons for it. Um, One of it is just to give players something that they can interact with on a much more level basis rather than um, saying, oh, well, you're dealing with abstract things. It's like, no, this is much more concrete reality. Like, um, since the players in this game are supposed to be um, testing themselves and learning about themselves and they're facing challenges which are custom built for their characters mm-hmm. well it's really weird if you just happen to stumble upon things that are custom built for you in advance and it's like how did that happen mm-hmm. so having a narrative explanation where it's like yeah you specifically have somebody who is manually going in and building the challenges before you encounter them, or at least some of them. Mm-hmm. That gives you something to work with. If you have somebody that you can talk to and say, where am I supposed to go next? What am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do in general, or I don't even know what to do with my life. Then it's like, okay, you can actually ask that question and be given a direct answer. Isn't isn't that the whole basis, though, of serendipity slash um, author's prerogative. In what way do you mean? Like, <clears throat> okay, not that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that serendipity needs to be slathered on everything because that just gets predictable and boring. But when you're telling a story with a set of characters that are the protagonists, it, it behooves the author to make the story about them. Yes. And relate to them. So yes. why does this, why does a GM avatar do that better than just the GM knowing that's what they should do? I can actually answer that question, I think. And Go right ahead. I'm curious as to your answer. Yeah. So I think because of what, what, what Kat's in dialogue with um, in terms of her design is... Uh, and please correct me if I get this wrong at any point, but having, having read what you wrote, I think, I think I understand what you were getting at um, is that when you're playing a, a game, like any game, right? Um, at some point, the level of why is this happening to me becomes hard to, hard to justify in a narrative sense. It's kind of like in Die Hard 2, where John McClane says this shit keeps, or maybe it's in Die Hard 3, the shit keeps happening to me. And it's sort of lampshading the idea that there's this one dude that gets involved in three different terrorist plots. But when the way Kat designed her GM avatar, like there's something in the game world that is putting this stuff in front of the players that is part of the mechanism for the willing suspension of disbelief. How close was I? That's a good chunk of it. Okay. There, there would be more to it, though. Like, keep in mind that there are other aspects that are going sure. on as well. Like, you can actually use this avatar as a NPC in the game that players can actually interact with, and they can have other aspects mm-hmm. going on beyond such, where it's like, oh, well, this is the plot. But then there's actually 
a larger plot that's going on external to such. Um, one of the big things about the game in particular is the fact that player characters have been dragged to this world basically against their will. Mm -hmm. Some of the players are going to look at this and be like, fuck this, I... I want to destroy the system. I want to break my way out. I don't want to go along with what's here. Mm -hmm. um, I actually want to find like the person in charge and punch right. them in the face. If you actually give the GM this as an actual character then and say, okay, you actually have somebody you can now punch in the face. That changes a lot of just how the players view the world and how the GM views the world, because the GM is now in a position that the players can actually attack the GM as a character, which is a little bit different than you get in almost any other game. Like, I'm not aware of any other game where there's the possibility for the GM to die. Well, I mean, I assume that we just end the game in most in most scenarios. <laughs> Um, I can understand in years it's scenarios. not going to because there's a there's a, a fail safe in place in the form of the rest of the GM's world, yeah. like the rest of the GM's, like um, the celestial host or or however you you phrase it. I can't remember exactly, but there, there's like a, a it's not just one of them. There's several. Yeah, and if you kill one, you're probably not going to get much help from the next one, mm. and they might be a little bit angry at you. Just a suggestion that, oh, you murdered their friend. You know, that's for doing their job, by the way, which was to help you. They're not going to be too pleased with actually being put in charge of helping you next. Right. But I would I would suggest that's probably the end of the game at that point. Like, that's just, that's, that's, to me, that would signify the player sort of like going like, ah, fuck it, and not wanting to play anymore. No, there's there is actually things built in that you can actually go from there. Like that would lead into uh different uh I don't want to use the term meta plot for the game, but yeah, it, there are overarching plot lines other than just the characters themselves. Like the characters are the center stage of the story, but there are other things going on backstage that they can't see. So it's how to put it and be like if you're the actors on the stage then there's an argument brewing between the uh creative say the director and the screenplay writer and they're going to start asking people to take sides right well how do you view the gm in your game then is it is it ad like an advocate or is it adversarial because it seems like it can't be a neutral arbiter from your the way you um have included a character in the game. That's the interesting thing. You can actually have a bit of a blend of each or pick which one's more fitting for a given situation. You can actually have more than one of these NPCs, and you can have some of them actually being directly arbiters for you for when the GM wants to be friendly, they can actually have one that is actively trying to help you. And then they can actually say, okay, I actually need to do something rotten to you. 
and this character is not going to be suitable for it. I need to do something that will actually harm you. I need to not just be doing something that's a challenge. I need to do something that will actually hurt you. There, and in there, that case, they can actually change. There's there's two ways I can see this going sideways. Oh, I can see one that. <laughs> it's, it's, there's a lot of potential problems with this. Okay, first is, I don't know if this is a good idea. The first is that this GM avatar concept thing, these NPCs, immediately turn into the dungeon master from the old D&D cartoon. And the players start using him as a crutch. Because literally, it's the GM showing up in the game, right? Right. Well, it's it, it's an avatar. It's, like a... it's not the GM, if I'm understanding it correctly. No, it's not actually the well, GM. I don't think good. that distinction matters. Mm. And the, the second way I think it I think it's a little relevant, but okay. Go sideways is that it's not really breaking the fourth wall, but it's putting something in the game that's that's clearly labeled fourth wall. I wouldn't say the same thing, though. Not much more so than a normal NPC is, but it is a bit more directly GM-ish than a regular NPC would be. Like... There is something that you can actually talk to that is fairly reminiscent of the GM. But I think one of the key differences from what you're describing is that unlike it being an actual GM in the game, these G, like, they're called guardian angels in the game just for anybody listening. Basically, these guardian angels... Not all of them are going to be on your side. They're supposed to be, but not all of them will be. You can have different uh, play styles for different ones that are in place, and they're not all powerful either, is the thing. So even though like your specific guardian angel is supposed to be looking out for you and providing you challenges that are difficult enough that there is a risk of failure, but it's not so difficult that you can't find some way around it kind of thing they're not necessarily going to be placing every single challenge that you run across in front of you some of those will not be put there by your guardian angel they're just going to come up because you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and they're not necessarily required to do anything about that so just because you have a NPC for the GM that basically acts as an avatar of sorts, it's not 100% be-all, end-all. You can just talk directly to the GM because they're not actually taking the full GM role. They're just a personification of some of it. Hmm. So you dodge the you dodge the question by splitting up the adversary arbiter antagonist into actual characters. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see how that how that's going to play out. Uh, I yeah. Same because I'm not entirely <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> I'll be finding out in the next few weeks. I mean, that's part of the fun of like doing trying to do novel shit in game design. It's like, well, 
here's an idea. Does it work? No, nope, just runs into a brick wall. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It, it might. It might go horribly, yep. horribly wrong. But from what I can tell from looking at it, it looks like it should work. Like there's going to be problems with it. I'm going to have to refine it. I yeah. know that already. Like when I tried to look up anything that did something similar to this, I couldn't really find it. So it's like, I mean, there was sort of one, but not really. It's, I mean, it, it many games but, do it in the helpful NPC slash enemy di- dichotomy, but to have it codified in a in a slightly removed way, yeah, I can't think of I can't think of a game that that does it in a similar fashion. Yeah. Yeah. The closest thing I've ever come to that I've seen isn't even in a tabletop RPG. It was in a video game called Dungeon Land, I mm. think it was. Where it's it's very very much so set up as sort of a a dungeon crawl and the dungeon master literally is a character who is given um, abilities that they can play at certain mm. times. It's very similar to uh, a video game version of Powered by the Apocalypse, mm. almost. Oh, in terms of the move set, I mean. Yeah, but it's much, much more combat rather right. than. There's almost no narrative to the game, so it's basically just. You can cast a spell that will um, boost the strength of this group of monsters, or you can summon a bunch of monsters here. You can place traps in the dungeon, stuff like right. that. Right, so like then. Descent, uh, if for a board game reference, Descent is very much like that. And there's, there's like GM, there's a, there's a GM there, but they're an adversarial GM. They have a pool of resources, and they can play cards to hinder the players and place monsters and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. In that particular case, the GM is always adversarial. And I don't really want that to be the case. I want you to be able to move between what happens to be a good idea at a given time. In general, by default, the basic premise is that most of the time the GM is trying to be on your side. They're they're trying to help you through, but they're doing it in the sense of they will do what you need, not what you want. Right. Yeah. I I kind of follow that too. Like I, ultimately, I see the GM as a facilitator, and what they're <clears throat> facilitating is the story, not which may or may not coincide with the PC's desires. Yeah, I think that's a good. I think that's a good general way of doing it before you before you get into the trying to figure out what GM style you, you want to go for in your particular game. I think it's a good idea to, to to start with the proposition that the GM is there to help the game move along in any way that you designate. Starting from that position, I think, gives you a powerful tool in figuring out what you want the GM to do in your game. Yeah, I think... For the way I'm setting it up, for the most part, you will usually want the GM to be on your side. They kind of want to see you succeed, but they have they can't be the overprotective parent either. Like their goal is 
like since you're supposed to be discovering yourself and who you are and that kind of thing, you can't do it by just handling all the problems right. for someone. You have to be like, okay, well, I'm going to tell you, it's a bad idea to touch the stove with your bare hands. And I'm not going to physically restrain you from doing it, but I'm telling you right now, if you do this, you're going to learn the hard way not right. to do it again. Right, right. I suppose in this analogy, you would actually be the one who puts a stove there and turns the burners <laughs> on and sits and watches. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, that's well, like uh, no, but, probably the most, well, not the most sadistic parent, but it's up there. <laughs> regardless of how a game presents their dominant GM role, whether it's adversarial or neutral arbiter or whatever, at some point during the game, any game, that's going to shift according to the needs of what's happening in the game. So, like, if your game is set up just completely blatantly as adversarial, you're not going to play the shopkeeper that the PCs are buying weapons from as an adversary. Right. Uh, Because so... it just doesn't work. So, well, not necessarily going to. Yeah, not but necessarily. You can't, but you can't take that. You can't take that. You can't take the way the GM, the the game presents the GM style, so completely to heart that it domineers everything about the setting. Yeah. Well, some GMs do that. Some GMs is just like every shopkeeper is selling cursed items, and well, I don't know if I, okay. I'm not going to say some GMs do that. There are stories of games happening where it's just the entire thing is just like this cursed realm of shit that the players are meant to hilariously die in. Like, yeah. And that's just, yeah, that's just sadistic. There are games that suit it. There are GMs that suit it. There are play styles that suit it. So I think it's just finding the right balance for what the game intends and what the players want. What the players want is important. Like I think Carr's point of like allowing, like stating up front, the players are allowed to call bullshit when they feel it's bullshit, and yeah. for that to actually put breaks on the game, I think is probably an important thing to keep in mind as well. I would actually say that in the example of like the shopkeeper, shopkeeper is at for sale real. They are trying to haggle. They want to get you to pay as much as they can out of you can out of your pocket. Okay, yes, he's a businessman, man, but he's not he's not also going to try and kill them for wanting to save a few pennies on a blade. Right. <laughs> I can think exceptions of this. I just don't think they're good exceptions. <laughs> There's always the exception to the rule, like maybe maybe the GM has specifically designed this particular shopkeeper to be just a complete asshole. That's his prerogative. But playing every shopkeeper that way is just dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's also why I set up the game so that you're mostly on the player side. But if you need to go adversarial, you can actually swap out the character to make it easier to do that. And then that also is a signal to the players as well. Or do you not do you not do that? Do you see like, oh, this is now the assholes in charge? They may not necessarily know that. Sometimes they may. Oh. But as long as you keep it consistent, I think it's probably... Yeah, as long as it's consistent most of the time. But it's like, they're not going to see these things being set up in the process mm -hmm. for them. They usually only see like the end set up. It's like, oh, there's a 
trap in a puzzle here. Okay, I guess we're supposed to solve it and avoid the trap. Unless it wasn't set there by who you thought it was. Right. Maybe it was intended for a different group. Maybe it's set up by somebody who just doesn't like you. Right. right. I think uh, we've sort of exhausted the topic. You guys uh, think, uh, is there anything else that somebody wants to jump in with before we, before we call it a night? Off the top of my head. I think that was everything I needed to say. Okay. Then, all right, so for Car, Cat, Cav, Mark, and myself, this is Flail Forward signing off. <laughs> <laughs>